Well, good morning. Let's start with a word of prayer. Our Lord, we just uh, thank you so much for um, just the worship of this church. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and just to be able to um, uh, just hear testimonies of what you've done in people's lives and um, just be able to sing about the testimony we know in Scripture about your work on the cross on our behalf. We know that you came to be righteousness for us and we can lean uh, wholly on that righteousness you have given us. So we thank you for that, Lord. I just ask this morning you would um, just be with our hearts, all of our hearts, that you would speak to us through your word. And I ask that you would uh, just give me the words that you would have me to speak and, and let it not be me, but your words being proclaimed up here, Father God. Um, just love you and, and bless this uh, time in your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Before I get started, my mom texted me last night, and she wanted me to pass something on to you guys. And so here's what she said. She said, please tell the church thank you so much for their prayers with a big red heart. And she says, we miss our church family and can't wait to be back with everyone. So uh, they are thankful for you guys. They're thankful for your prayers. So um, just want you guys to know that they, they love you guys. They're excited to be back here. And I know me and Hannah, we're excited to have them back. Um, so just, uh, just know that they're, they're looking forward to being back uh, with the people of Providence Bible Church. So well, this morning, if you have your Bibles, um, I'm going to be speaking to you uh, from John chapter 9. And this morning, what we're going to be doing is focusing on only two verses from John 9, and they're going to be verses 4 and 5. And although we are going to be studying a specific text this morning and be looking at how that text fits into the uh, overarching themes and context of John, uh, this sermon will still be something of a topical uh, sermon this morning. And, and what I'd like to focus on is how we spend our time as Christians, and as the title gives away, right? We should be doing light work, so to speak. Um, so, so time has been kind of an interesting subject lately in our, in our day. Uh, one, one of the things that I think we've all found over the last couple years, since the sickness we don't speak of, <laughs> is that our culture has changed to become an even more isolated culture. Uh, we, we find ourselves in, in a, a, a culture that is becoming increasingly isolated. Be, before the sickness that we don't speak of, that, you know, we, were, we already saw the isolating effects of media and technology. Uh, me and Hannah in youth ministry, we saw the way that technology caused our kids to be more, more of homebodies and, and less inclined to spend time with uh, their friends in person. And so this was already something that was happening before coronavirus, and then, then once coronavirus happened, it seems that we have found ourselves in a significantly more isolated culture, right? More than ever before, we, we, you know, there's a lot of people who work online now. Uh, there's more of us who do school online now, and, and many things that used to be in person are now done remotely. And as a general rule, our online presence has increased and our social interactions have decreased. 
Right? And as Christians, we must realize that this cultural change we're experiencing, it fundamentally works against our mission as Christians. Right? Uh, our mission is to be lights in a dark world and be verbally spreading the gospel to the lost. And, and with this cultural change that we see happening, it's become even easier to be a homebody. Right? It's become even easier to waste time. And it's become even harder to build relationships with those who are lost. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This morning, I want to consider how we can walk wisely in the way that we use our time. And I, I want to do this by looking at the example that we have in Christ. Uh, I, I want to look at Jesus' example, Jesus' motivation in life, the way that Jesus used his time. And by doing so, I want to encourage us and challenge us to, to evaluate the way we use our time as believers. So what I want to do, I want to read John 9, 1 through 7. And again, we're going to focus on verses 4 and 5 this morning. So John 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So this is a, a short little section of John 9, and I would imagine that it probably gets overlooked more than it gets studied, because we find this little you know, blurb of two verses in a massive narrative that, that normally the attention goes to the narrative and the conversation Jesus has, and this blind man has with the Pharisees after the work has been done. But one of the things I've learned as I've studied the Word of God over the years is that sometimes it's the nuances of Scripture that hold some of the sweetest truths, right? Some, some of the little things, when we dig in deep and start to see some of the little things in Scripture, it, it really, we find some very sweet things if we are willing to dig. The problem is, as a preacher, you can't hit every single nuance. Right? If, if you try to do that, then you'll be one of those preachers who spends seven years in Matthew, right? And by the time that's all said and done, no one wants to read the book of Matthew again. So you kind of have to pick and choose your battles, right? But, but we have a sweet little truth here, and this morning I want to spend our time, again, in verses 4 and 5. And, and this morning I want to recognize three truths, uh, uh, or, yeah, three truths that dictated the way that Jesus used his time. The three truths that dictated the way that Jesus used his time, and by looking at these three truths, I want to challenge us in the way that we use our time. Sorry, I think I'm behind here. Okay. 
So the first thing we find this morning is that Jesus allowed his purpose in this world to dictate the way he used his time. Right? Je- Jesus allowed his purpose in this world to dictate the way he used his time. Look again in John 9, 5. Jesus declares, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That, that is his purpose. He is declaring why he is here And one of the things that John does in his gospel is he he makes much of the fact that Jesus came to be the light of the world. And John loves to use this analogy of light and darkness. It's it's unique to him. We find it in the gospel of John. We find it in his epistles, right? Light and darkness. Consider John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 1.6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, right? That all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Oh, there it is. Then John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This idea of light and darkness is a very prominent theme in the book of John, and it's especially prominent in chapter 1. From the very beginning of John's gospel, John makes it clear that Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. He came to shine the glory of God into the darkness of the world and to make manifest God's glory. And John makes it clear before the coming of Jesus, there was darkness in this world and there was spiritual blindness. It's like people were groping around trying to see, but they could not because the darkness was so severe. And in fact, John actually tells us that it was so dark, so dark that, that someone had to be sent to warn the world that the light was coming. Have you guys ever thought about that? It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if you guys have ever suffered when a spouse turns on the light in the middle of the night. It is blinding at that moment, not that my spouse has ever done that, but in that moment, your light fixture is brighter than the sun. It's so bright, and what do you say when that happens? Say what, yeah, you say ouch, yeah. And then you say, why didn't you warn me? You gotta give me a warning before you do that so I can, you know, stuff three pillows in my eyes, right? And in the same way, that that tells us something about the darkness that covered this earth spiritually, right? It was so dark that God sent someone to bear witness about the light and say, hey, the light's about to get turned on. And so Jesus comes as the light of the world, and when he entered the world, he entered as a burst of light, according to John, filling the world with the glory of the Father. And this is why Jesus came to earth, right? According to him, This is why he came to earth. And what we find in this passage this morning is that Jesus let that purpose dictate the way he used his time. Right? He let that purpose dictate what he did. Again, John 9, 5, as long as I am in this world, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm here, my purpose is to shine. I have been sent in the world to shine. Therefore, while I'm here, I am the light and I will be doing light work. And I dare say there was not a time in the life of Jesus and in his ministry when he was not actively working to be the light of the world. 
There was never a time when this reality escaped his mind. He was driven by this purpose, whether he was in public, whether he was walking on the path, whether he was in private, praying to the Father, he was the light of the world, and this purpose drove what he did. And something we must remember as believers is that Jesus is not the only one who is called the light of the world in Scripture. Right? And Jesus is not the only one who has been given purpose in this world according to Scripture. Right? What does Matthew 5.14 say? Sorry, tech is tripping me up here. Right? What does Matthew 5.14 say? It says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, 1 John 2.8 the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Well, how is the true light already shining right now if Jesus is at the right hand of God? It's through you. Right? Lanny's prayer was so appropriate. Right? God's light in the world right now, his glory shines through us who are his church. You are the light of the world. That is your purpose right now. Right? We find this all throughout the New Testament. And even here in John 9, 4, notice that Jesus doesn't say, as long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. But what does he say? Or, or sorry, he doesn't say, I must work the works of him who sent me. He says, we must work, right? You and I are included in this work of being light. So first of all this morning, understand that as long as you are in the world, you also are the light of the world. That is why you are here. The question is, do you live that way? Right? Does your purpose as light in this world guide what you do, or are you driven and guided by another purpose? Secondly, this morning, we see that Jesus allowed his limited time on earth to dictate the way he used his time. Jesus allowed his limited time on earth to dictate the way he used his time. We just saw how Jesus was driven by his purpose. Now we see that Jesus was driven by the short amount of time that he had to work. Look again at verse 4. He says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. One of the realities that we as humans cannot escape is the fact that our life and our days on this earth are limited, right? And they are short. Our lives on this, uh, on this world are short. And some people try to suppress this reality in their minds. I've met many people who don't believe in Jesus, and, and they're trying to suppress the reality that they will die someday in their mind. Right? They, they don't want to think about that. They ignore it. And then you meet other people who are, they're trying to make the most of their lives. They're filling it with experiences. Right? They're living for the moment. They're doing what they can to squeeze the most out of this short life that they have. Back in college, the phrase was YOLO. You only live once, right? So go out there and send it. That's basically, right, that was the mindset in college. But, but all humans at one time or another were faced with the reality that life is short and in the realm of Christianity, we certainly cannot escape this reality either. Right? Consider Ecclesiastes 6.12. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. Really, 
really encouraging there, right? <laughs> Want to encourage Providence Bible Church, right? Or, or James 4.14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen those weird little, I don't know if they're called a vaporizer or humidifier or whatever it is, but you know, people will set them on their kitchen counter and they have this little ribbon of vapor that keeps coming out and it smells good. I literally have no idea. Diffuser, that's what it is, not a vaporizer. Vaporizing would not be good. But I like those things <laughs> because they light up and they're, they're cool, but, but they got that little ribbon that comes out and it's just a wisp. And if there's any draft in the house, that ribbon is it's going everywhere, right? And it's here and then it's gone. And that's what James says our life is. It is brief. It is a vapor, right? And the brief nature of our lives should drive us to work hastily for the kingdom of God. And that's what we see from Christ here in John 9. He is working with haste because his life is short. Again, verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. What's Jesus getting at here? When he talks about day and night, what what is he talking about? What he's saying is, just like there are only so many hours of daylight in the day, so are there only so many days in a man's life that he can work. Just like the brightness of the day is limited, just like there are only so many hours in the day, so is there only so little time for you in your life to work. Because night is coming when you cannot work anymore. And night, of course, is talking about the day that we pass. Right? Night is coming. Once you pass, your time for work will be over. And one of the interesting things that John does in his book is he records the ministry of Jesus in terms of a day. Right? There's literally phases of, of Jesus' ministry that you could compare to a day. Um, consider John 1. If, actually, if each chapter of John had like a brightness gauge, John 1, you would need sunglasses to look at because it's such a bright chapter. Right? There is so much light that is flooding into John 1. And, and John basically compares Jesus' ministry, the beginning, beginning of his ministry in John 1, as the brightness of the morning. Right? Jesus burst on the scene, and then we get to John 6. And this seems to be the high noon of Jesus' ministry. Right? He feeds the 5,000. This is the height of his popularity during his ministry on earth. And then we get here to John chapter 9. And we see that evening is approaching. Right? It's still light, but Jesus says in verse 4, the night is coming. Right? The night is in sight for him. And then finally, night will come in John 13, 30, when Judas goes out to betray him. This is how it reads. John 13, 30 says, After receiving the morsel of bread, he, that is Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. Right? It was night both in the sense that nightfall had come, but it was the end of Jesus' ministry. Right? His ministry started with the brightness of morning. It ended with the darkness of night. And during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus let the reality of his limited time on earth dictate the way he used his time. There was an urgency about the work of our Lord, and you can hear it in our passage today. 
Right? He's like, we, we must work while it is still day. Right? We, we must work while we have time. There is only so much daylight, and we have to get done what we can while there's daylight, because once night comes, we have to put down the shovel. Right? We, we have to put down the, the tools of work. There's only so much time. And only two chapters later, in John 11, after Lazarus had died, we see that the disciples try to hinder Jesus from going up to Judea. Right? Lazarus had just died, and Jesus goes, I'm going to go up to Judea. Well, the disciples didn't like that idea. Because not far before that, the Jews had tried to, to stone Jesus. Right? They didn't like the message of Christ, and they were, they were trying to stone him. They, attempted to, uh, they made an attempt on the life of our Lord. But nevertheless, Lazarus dies, and Jesus says, I'm going up to Judea. And the disciples, they say, what are you thinking, right? Are you crazy? These men just, just tried to kill you, right? Aren't you Jesus? Don't you know these people are seeking your life? And Jesus responds again with urgency. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because light is not in him. Again, Jesus is saying there is only so much time to do work. There's only so much time, and he must work while it is daylight, even if it means facing risk up in Judea. Jesus must go, and he must work, because there is only so much time. Right? And Jesus models for us a very urgent posture. It's an urgency that we even see in the early church. We see the early church working hard, working efficiently to spread the gospel and to be about gospel ministry. And this is an urgency that I'm afraid we don't see a lot of in our churches today, right? There's, there aren't many churches today that are urgently looking outside of their walls. And I find this lack of urgency even in my own life. When I read this account in John 11, I think to myself, what would I have done if Lazarus had died? Right? Would I have made excuses for why I couldn't go up to Jerusalem? Would I have said something like, it's not wise for me to go to Jerusalem right now because people are trying to kill me and God wants me to be wise, so I'm not going to go up right now. Or would I have said, you know, there will be plenty of time later on for me to go up to Judea and, and I'll do the work of God then. Or would I have said, Here's one for you. God is sovereign, and I know if I don't go, he'll send someone else up to do the work, right? He's going to accomplish his purpose, purposes whether I work or not, right? We often make excuses as to why today is not the right day to do something for the Lord. And we often live as if time isn't a limited thing, as if we get plenty of time, right? It's going to last forever. There will always be time, right? And so there is no urgency and we often use our time in a way that says God's kingdom is not important. And we must understand that there is only so much time in our lives to do God's work. Right? There's only so much time for fruitful labor before the master returns. In another place in the New Testament, Jesus makes it clear that there is a very big work to be done, but very few people to do it. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? 
They are few. Therefore, what does Jesus say? Pray earnestly that God would send forth laborers into the harvest. Understand, there is a work to be done while we are here. So will we work with urgency and seek to impact the lost? Thirdly, this morning, in our passage, we find that Jesus used his time to do the works of the Father. All right, Jesus used his time to do the works of the Father. Our first two points this morning talked about what motivated Jesus to spend his time in a certain way. We've been looking at the motivations of Christ. We saw how his purpose in this world motivated him to use his time in a certain way. We saw how Christ's limited time on this earth motivated him to use his time in a certain way. Right? These things drove Jesus to work hard. And the final point this morning has to do with the nature of the work itself. Right? Well, what are the works that Jesus worked so urgently to do? What kind of works was Jesus urgently trying to accomplish? Jesus says in John 9, 4, we must work while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. So what are those works? And to answer that question, all we have to do is read a little bit further. One of the beautiful things about Scripture is that when when the text presents a question, you don't have to go blowing through the pages of Scripture all the way back to Genesis to answer it, Right? A lot of times it's just right in the context. But, but here we find the answer. If we look at verse 6, we begin to learn about the nature of Jesus' work. Here's what he says. He says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The actual work that Jesus does in this passage only takes two verses to explain. It's very simple. Jesus spit, (laughs) he made mud, he put the mud on the blind man's eyes, and then told the blind man to wash the mud off. Very simple explanation, definitely one of the less glamorous works that Jesus did in his ministry. Right? And if verses 6 and 7 were the only verses that we had after Jesus talked about the work he had come to do, I would be tempted to conclude that Jesus came to the earth simply to perform miracles. All right, that's what we find in verses 6 and 7. We find a miracle. So, I, you know, if we stop there, then we might be tempted to conclude Jesus just came to do miracles. But one of the things that we know about John is that the miracles he records are not just miracles. They are signs that point to Christ's deity. They are signs that say this man is the son of God. John 20, 31 says, These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Thankfully, John was there. He witnessed these miracles, and he wrote down accounts of the works of the son of God so that we could read them and then declare this man is the son of God. And that's why in this passage, we don't just see a miracle and that's it. But we see a whole chapter dedicated to how certain people respond to what Jesus just did. Right? There's a whole chapter. All the rest of John 9 is about people wrestling with the identity of Jesus after he performs this miracle. The blind man, though he was once physically blind, 
Spiritually, he is the one who eventually perceives Christ clearly at the end of this account. Right? When the Pharisees asked this man in verse 17 what he had to say about Jesus, the blind man said, he is a prophet. He's on the right track. He, he acknowledges that Jesus is from God. He acknowledges that the man who opened his eyes must be sent from God in some way. And then a little bit later on, we find that he confesses, if this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Right? So we start to see an even stronger declaration from the blind man about who Jesus might be. And then we get to verse 35. And here's how the passage reads. It says, Jesus heard that they cast this man out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. The man who started out physically blind in this passage, ironically, is the one who has the, spirit, the clearest spiritual sight of Jesus. He's the one who acknowledges Jesus as Lord and he bows down before him. While at the same time, on the opposite side of the spectrum, the Pharisees start out physically being able to see just fine. But they are the ones who end up turning out to be spiritually blind in the end. Right? They are the ones who Jesus says, you are, right? he, he declares that they are spiritually blind and they are the ones that cast out the blind man for, for questioning them essentially. So understand, right? We look at this passage and we see the work that Jesus came to do was far more than just do miracles. It was not just perform cool works and helpful things so that people could look and say, thank you. The work that Jesus labored so hard to do while he was in this earth was to reveal himself as God and Savior so that people could have a chance to believe in him. That's the work that he came to do. That's what Jesus labored so hard to do. And this is the work that occupied Jesus' time. He came to reveal himself as the bread of life. Those who partake in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus came to reveal himself as the giver of living water. Those who come to Jesus for a drink would have a well of life spring up within them. Jesus came to reveal himself as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And Jesus came to reveal himself as the resurrection and the life so that those who believe in him would have life through their, though their physical bodies may die. This was the work of Christ. And this morning as believers, we need to understand that this is the type of work that we are to spend our time doing as well. We too ought to be regularly presenting people with the truth about Jesus so that they can respond either in faith or in unbelief. We too ought to be regularly proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into the light so that the world might have a chance to respond to Jesus. Oh, there we go. Yeah, sorry, I'm 
I'm a little behind here, as usual. But understand there must be an urgency to our work because we know there is only so much time to spread the good news of Christ. And there is only so much time to be the light of the world. And there is only so much time for you to, to go to, from person to person and group to group to reveal Christ so that they might believe in him. Paul calls this ministry the ministry of reconciliation. Right? And Paul says that this ministry of reconciliation, it fundamentally changes the way that we view the world. In 2 Corinthians, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So what do we see then? If we're not regarding people according to the flesh, then we are seeing their soul. And we are looking out in this world, and we are seeing a sea of souls who need the light of Christ to be shined upon them. Instead of seeing people to impress or people we don't want to look stupid in front of, we should see a soul who is walking in darkness who needs to be exposed to the light of Christ. And instead of seeing people who are hopeless or maybe too far gone or, or, or too far away to turn to Christ, we should see people who need to hear the good news of Jesus even if they don't believe. Think about how many people heard from the mouth of our Lord, the truth about himself, but didn't believe. He was a ministry of life to his sheep and a ministry of death to those who were not. And we need to start viewing ourselves as ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us instead of people who are meant to enjoy the luxuries of this world, me included, right? Where there's such a great temptation here, especially in America with the wealth that we have Right, that we enjoy, God has blessed us with to start finding our hope in those things instead of keeping our focus on our mission. And so to close this morning, I want to leave you all with three questions that I hope you will think about or maybe even write down to meditate on later. First of all, what are you doing regularly to keep your mission in view as a Christian? What are you doing regularly so that you don't lose sight of your mission? To put it another way, what are you in doing to ensure that you don't spend your days distracted by the cares of this world? I, I find myself often that I'll wake up and I'll spend time with Christ and have really rich time in the Word, and then it's like I go into real-world mode, <laughs> and I forget, and I live as if, uh, I, I had never spent time with Christ, right? I live as if the cares of this world are what are important. Right? Wh what are you doing? What are we doing to counteract that? What are, you, what are you doing so that your life looks like the examples we have in the early church of people who are concerned about getting people, reaching people for the gospel? Right? Paul says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Right? What are you doing to keep that mission on the forefront of your minds. Secondly, how are you placing yourself in situations to be light to this world? Right? Again, we find ourselves in an isolated culture, right? a culture that is increasingly isolated, increasingly lends itself to, to, to staying at home, to not going out, to not uh, working to build relationships with people. How are you working to place yourself in situations to be light to this world? 
If, if we're here for a purpose and for a mission, if we're here to be lights, then how are we accomplishing that purpose? We're very good at applying our brains. We put a lot of time into the things that we enjoy, but how about, uh, how about our mission on earth? How are we applying our brains to, to, to reach the world and to, to have an impact individually for the lost in this world? In the book of Acts, the disciples were often said to go into the synagogues to reason with the Jews and Greeks. They would regularly go and engage people and talk to people and ask, well, who is Jesus, right? Have you heard the good news of Christ? In Acts 17, 17, the Bible says Paul would reason in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Right? How are we doing that? What are you going to do to accomplish that mission? And then lastly this morning, are you using your time wisely. Right? We, we aren't always out in public as Christians. We aren't always out on the front lines, so to speak, talking to unbelievers about the gospel. Much of our time is spent with our families. Much of our time is spent at home, and that is a necessary part of life. Right? As a husband, as a wife, your first uh, ministry is your family that God has given you. But what about our free time and our spare time? What are we doing with those? How are we stewarding the extra time in the day that we've been given? Again, in Ephesians 5, we started with this verse. Paul says, we want to make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Right? We want to be careful with our time. We, we want to be, be really careful and use it efficiently for the kingdom of God. So how are we being careful with our extra time? Are we using it to shop and to build our kingdom? Are, are we planning the future for our earthly kingdoms? Are we filling our minds with idle things that are of no value? Or are we looking to use even our free time in a way that aligns with our purpose on earth? Right? There's nothing in the Bible that says our free time isn't subject to our mission on earth. Right? I'm not saying every spare moment should be spent reading Wayne Grudem. <laughs> Right? You don't have to yeah, beat yourself to death with that, I guess. Right, But I am saying that even our free time should be influenced by our mission. Right? And, and I think one of the ways that the enemy maybe wreaks a little bit of havoc with us and causes us to be unfruitful is by causing us to fill our free time with worthless things that distract. Right? And I include myself in that. Right? We must wage war and keep our mission at hand so that we may do fruitful labor while it is still day. How are you using your time wisely? Let's pray. Our Lord, we just love you. We thank you for the work that you did because we know that without this work, we would have no hope. Lord, the work that you did on earth, it saved us. It gave us hope. It gave us life. It, it uh, helps us to be able to cope with a world that is short and vain, as Ecclesiastes says. Um, so we thank you for that. We recognize the value of the work that you did. It is of infinite worth. It has impacted us for eternity. And so I pray, Lord, as you have employed us, that we would go out and continue that work that you left for us to do, that we would go out and continue to be lights 
in a dark world so that other people may have the hope that we have. Lord, give us boldness. Uh, uh, shake us from our comfortable lives. I, uh, Lord, it's so hard to detach ourselves from the comfort we enjoy, the luxuries we enjoy, to go out and do some work. It's not easy, and we need your grace to be able to do that. We recognize that. And so I ask that you would grant the grace, grant the motivation, grant the realization from your word that we have work to do and that a day is coming when we can no longer work. Lord, may, may your mission be our mission and give us grace to accomplish it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.